Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 21, and I'm only going to read down through verse 18. So Michael, I know that the rest of those verses are up there, so we'll have to skip ahead just a little bit. Ephesians 1, 15, follow along for this reason. Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and, and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. We'll stop there for now and we'll pick back up next week. I just read this week that NASA is pretty sure that they found an exoplanet, a moon, circling around another planet, which is fascinating to me. NASA uh, believes that they found 4,000 planets outside of our solar system to date and has compiled a list of 4,000 other promising sites where they think there may be planets. Well, it is utterly impossible to see planets in another solar system. We don't have any kind of technology that enables us to do that. You can't see them through the most powerful telescopes. So how does NASA look for planets in other solar systems? Well, astronomers look for the temporary dimming of a star's light which they believe happens, they noticed this first before they realized what would cause it, which they believe happens when a planet's orbit takes it between us and its own sun. There's that little dimming. Doing astronomy is a little like um, solving a detective mystery. One must search for clues. In a mystery novel, so I'm an Agatha Christie fan for years. I go on vacation and I'll take an Agatha Christie novel with me. In, In a In a mystery novel, the brilliant detective walks into the room and he knows almost immediately that the Duke slumped over in his chair didn't die of natural causes. He's certain someone else was in the room when his lordship met his untimely death, even though nobody knows who that person could have been. Nobody saw anyone. Uh, The police, of course, they noticed the wine glass on the tray, but only he understood the significance. The Duke was a teetotaler. See, so those are clues for finding murders or exoplanets, but what clues would you, would a detective, let's say an apostolic detective, look for to determine whether God was in a church? St. Paul was a great detective, and he knew the signs, and he referred to them again and again. When you find, this is verse 15, the presence of faith in Jesus, along with a love for all the saints, you can be sure God's been there. No one else leaves precisely those clues. They are as good as a fingerprint. They are God's fingerprint. Faith in Jesus, love for all the saints. Some people think that the surest clue to the presence of God is a miracle. Paul didn't. Even if he found one, it wouldn't prove to him that God was there. Jesus had warned that imposters would be able to do miraculous things. So even an incontestable miracle is not sufficient proof that God is in a church. 
I've heard people say of a church with lots of buzz and excitement that God was obviously in that. But it wouldn't mean that to the Apostle Paul. When Paul found money, power, and the cultural signs of success, he didn't say to himself, ah, I see he's been here. But when he saw faith, confidence in Jesus, and love for Jesus' people, he was absolutely certain that God was there. As I mentioned last week, the sole request in this prayer, though some English versions blur this, the sole request is for God to give the Ephesians a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The presence of this spirit will enlighten the eyes of the Ephesians' heart, their command center, and lead them to know three things. One, the hope of God's calling. Two, the glorious riches of his inheritance in the saints. And three, the incomparably great power God has prepared to use in the lives of those who believe. Now, we looked at the first of those last week. If you didn't hear that sermon, get the CD or go online. Today, we look at the second. Next week, we'll look at the third. Paul wants the spirit of wisdom and revelation to bring home to Jesus' people the inestimable value, the riches or wealth of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now, the trinity of blessings for which Paul prays, knowledge of the hope of his calling, of the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and of the power that works on the behalf of believers, this one acts as the binding that holds the other two together. One scholar I know suggests that the hope of his calling deals with the past because it reaches back to when we were called. The glorious riches of his inheritance in the saints regards the future when all of God's people will be together in heaven and the power that works on behalf of the saints regards the present. That doesn't quite fit, at least in my thinking. So it's true that our calling may have come to us in the past, but the hope Paul wants us to know clearly deals with the future. And likewise, he didn't consider God's inheritance in the saints to be a future treasure only as if it were some kind of retirement savings or IRA. Paul regarded the Philippian believers as a very present treasure, joy and crown, he calls them, during his lifetime. And the incomparably great power for us who believe was great before we knew we were called, is great now, and will be as great as it ever has been in the future. It doesn't seem to me that these three great realities fit into a past, present, future framework. They connect. And the second of the three, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, is where they attach. Or think of it as an intersection where two roads meet. Our hope travels along one, God's power along the other. And where they intersect, there's a roundabout or a traffic circle. The hope of his calling and the greatness of his power circle around his holy people. Hope and power meet in his glorious inheritance in the saints. Note the surprising pronoun. It's not your inheritance or our inheritance, but his inheritance. His inheritance in the saints. Paul's not talking, as he frequently does, about our inheritance but about God's, and it's an inheritance to die for. But really, someone did die for it. Jesus. We often speak and often think 
of Jesus dying to give us salvation, which is wonderfully true. But he also died to give God a glorious inheritance in the saints. It's not too much to say that Jesus was dying to have that inheritance. Now, what does God need with an inheritance? Doesn't everything already belong to him? Doesn't he hold the intellectual property rights since he thought of everything? Aren't all use rights determined by him since he made everything? Doesn't every animal of the forest and cattle on a thousand hills belong to him? As well as every planet and sun and galaxy in the universe, everything belongs to him by right, including every person who lives, has lived, or ever will live. But see, God is not satisfied to have us by right. He will have us also by love. That's the meaning of the extravagant, inordinate, sacrificial life and death of Jesus. God will have us by love. With all of creation at his disposal, God could choose anything that piqued his interest for his personal inheritance. The 420 trillion mile wide Eagle Nebula or the blazing Horsehead Nebula, which just shines in the sky, or the pearly Milky Way with its wealth of planets. By the most conservative estimate, there are over 100 billion solar systems in the Milky Way. So what did God choose for his inheritance? He chose the saints, his holy people, to be his treasure. Christ didn't die for the horsehead nebula, at least as far as we know, but he did die for us. Apart from God himself, as if anything could be apart from God himself, the richest, most beautiful thing in this vast, breathtaking universe is Jesus' people. For beauty, there's nothing that compares to the bride of Christ. For potential to do good, bring pleasure, excite joy, produce benefit, there's nothing that matches God's holy people. They are not a natural resource. They are a supernatural resource capable of bringing about unimaginable good. Paul uses the word riches or wealth, depending on which translation you use, in speaking of the saints. Enormous wealth resides in the saints, the people who are set apart for God's service and pleasure. When God chose the saints for his inheritance, he knew what he was doing. He chose the best, most beautiful, most powerful, most promising thing in the universe. And if you belong to God because you have faith in Jesus Christ, you're part of that. Paul also uses the word glory, the glory of his inheritance to describe the saints. Now, we look at the saints, and we see old Mrs. Smudge, who can never manage to put her lipstick on straight. And we see Mr. Contrary. He's about as much fun as having a tooth pulled. And there's Nancy Neurotic, who is a bundle of weirdness, and John Washout, who's failed spectacularly at everything he's ever done. And it sure doesn't seem like glory that we're seeing. John Foreman, one of my favorite singer-songwriters, John Foreman described the saints, including himself, as the beautiful letdown. He calls us the church of the dropouts, the losers, the sinners, the failures, and the fools. 
Where's the glory in that? It's there, but it's down deep. And we just get occasional glimpses of it. But then our spiritual vision is monocular. We lack depth of vision, especially when we look at the saints. We can't see past the surface. We just see two-dimensional cartoon-like characters, flat, occasionally funny, frequently sad. But God has great depth of vision. He has x-ray vision. He sees the depths. God looks past our foolishness and our failures, and he sees deep inside us, and do you know what he sees? He sees Christ in you, the hope of glory. Without Christ in us, we are flat, and our potential is limited, but Christ's presence changes everything. In the 19th century, Russian Orthodox Church, priests hardly ever left their buildings to go out and to be with people, to help people. It was a difficult time in Russia. Uh, But the priests waited for people to come to them. But John of Kronstadt was different. He went out into the streets among the alcoholics and down and outers and told them about Jesus. He would lift them in his arms, hungover, foul-smelling, and say to them, This is beneath your dignity. You were meant to house the fullness of God. He caught glimpses of Jesus within. But see, God sees Jesus, as the psalmist put it, all glorious within. And he sees with perfect acuity. Add Jesus even to people like us. And you get glory. Add Jesus, you get glory. The Russian comedian who immigrated to the U.S., maybe I think it was the 1970s, Yakov Smirnov, some of you will remember that name. He used to say the thing he loved most about America was the grocery stores. He'd say, I'll never forget walking down one of the aisles, first time he's in America in a grocery store, and seeing powdered milk. Just add water and you get milk. And right next to it was powdered orange juice. Just add water and you get orange juice. And then he says, I saw the baby powder and I thought to myself, what a country. (laughs) When God looks at us, he sees something other people might overlook. Jesus Christ. Just add Jesus and you get glory. We're spiritually monocular. No depth vision. But we're also temporally myopic. We can't see past this moment. But God sees deep and he sees far. Right into the endless future. He not only sees what we are, he sees what we will be. And it's not just that he looks into the future like some um, prophet or fortune teller. He's already there. He sees us complete and resplendent in glory. He sees the church, the bride of Christ, effulgent, breathtakingly beautiful, unconquerably strong. He sees glory. See, The difference between us now and us then is the difference between looking at a magazine with a designer sketch of the new Lamborghini and sitting in the completed car 
behind the wheel on the straightaway doing 185. Now you may think, yeah, glory, but this is Lockwood. Yeah, this is just Lockwood. But you know what Lockwood is? A society, as C.S. Lewis magnificently put it, of possible gods and goddesses. The dullest and most interesting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. If it seems impossible to you that I should be such a creature, or that you should be such a creature, then I tell you your instincts are spot on. It is impossible apart from Christ. But add Jesus, even to creatures such as you and me, and you get glory. But it's a shared glory. There are no superstars here, there are only saints. And saints always come in a multi-pack. They're a package deal. This rich glory is shared. Every December, the music department at Concordia College, which is up in Moorhead, Minnesota, out in the middle of uh, nowhere, just across from Fargo, every December they put on this fabulous Christmas concert. And Moorhead waits in eager anticipation for it. In fact, they start getting ready in the middle of the summer, uh, which is about like three weeks in Moorhead, Minnesota. So people in the community, they begin working on the backdrop for the concert stage every summer. And it's a 100 by 30 foot mosaic. And every year, the community designs the mosaic themselves. They rent an empty building, and then they begin painting. Hundreds of people will show up, from middle schoolers to senior citizens, and they paint this mosaic. It's, it's like a large-scale paint-by-number with thousands of tiny pieces. So day by day, for six months, the mosaic takes shape, one little painted piece at a time. For several months, it, it looks just like a confusing tangle of line and color. But by December, it comes together, and it looks like this beautiful stained glass window. On the weekend of the concert, the people who help paint the backdrop, they come early, and they bring their family, they bring their friends with them. And all around the concert hall, you can hear people whispering things like, see that little green spot below the camel's foot? I painted that. <laughs> that little green spot had no glory until it shared the glory of the whole. And that's the way it is with us. Paul prays we will know the glory of the saints, not the glory of the saint. We'll close in just a moment. Let me mention again that word riches or wealth, verse 18. It'll help us to understand the nature of this wealth if we remember Jesus' answer to Peter when Peter said to him, we've left everything to follow you. So what will there be for us? Jesus told him, no one who's left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in the present age, not just in the future, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life. In what form do they receive this wealth? Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, they receive in the form of God's holy people, the church. See, when the economy takes a dive, 
when the stock market crashes, when inflation devalues our savings, when hospital bills send us into bankruptcy, the true people of God remain as valuable as ever and more than enough to cover whatever God wants to do or make of our lives in this world. It's important to remember that the saints, though, are God's wealth. And we'd better be authorized to spend his wealth before trying to do so. God will readily use his wealth on behalf of those who serve him, those who put Jesus and the gospel above everything else. But people who expect God to spend his valuable inheritance on their behalf when they're only serving themselves will find their expectations dashed. And people who try to spend God's wealth without permission, who wrongfully use the saints of God, will wish they hadn't. Now let's put all this together. The saints, so those people whose lives are set apart, that's what the word means, for Jesus and his gospel, and any of us can be among them, are God's chosen inheritance. They're unimaginably valuable. And yet God will spend them to support, provide for, and bless those who put Jesus first. There is, however, this weird dynamic in play when God spends his inheritance. When we spend ours, we end up with less than we had. When God spends his, he ends up with more. Those saints who are spent by the Father on behalf of the Son are the most precious, beautiful, least tarnished treasures in all of God's glorious inheritance. See, it's a paradox. The more the Christian gives of himself, the more he has of himself. He actually becomes more as he gives. Now, that doesn't work if he just gives his money or his possessions. He has to give himself. But when he does that, as Jesus said, give and it will be given you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. All right, let's pray. God, bring this home to us. Haunt us with this beauty that's both around us and in us only by the grace of Jesus. That you should choose us to be your treasure. Lord, it blows our minds. And we just worship you for it. Amen.